you know, he fails and like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we love watching stuff like that. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, we do have a, an odd captivation with people or empires who fall at the peak of their power. Uh, in particular, I was just thinking about a couple of famous books that talk about uh, the rise and fall of Rome, uh, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Uh, we're fascinated by this stuff. Maybe more recently, there's this podcast that has been pretty popular in Christian circles, which talks about uh, this church out west that had like 15,000 members that was disbanded after a series of really uh, poor choices and bad mistakes that happened. Maybe a little more lightheartedly, you know, we had the super team of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving who couldn't even beat the Celtics in the playoffs, and we just love seeing, like, people crumble. But what we've been observing in 1 Samuel up to this point is this absolute plummet of King Saul, where he was God's servant equipped by God with his spirit, with people around him, set up for success by our standards. And in the last couple of weeks in particular, we have just seen his absolute plummeting as a leader. I mean, it wasn't too long ago we were reading about Saul, the timid young man who's hiding among the baggage as people are looking to anoint him king. And immediately after that, Saul uh, leads them in victory and battle, and he credits God for giving them the victory, and it seems like, okay, things are going well, but the wheels have just absolutely come off on Saul's reign here in 1 Samuel, uh, to the point where even Saul's children are aligning with David rather than Saul. Just last week, we looked at two of his kids, Michael and Jonathan, uh, Michael was David's wife, actually, and she lies to these guards who are coming to look for David and says that he's sick, when in reality he was uh, fleeing for his life. Jonathan does the same thing, where he goes into the field and he shoots these arrows and tells his uh, errand boy to keep going, look further, and that was a warning to David to flee the wrath of his father. And, you know, we can appreciate fail videos and enjoy them in some humorous way, but I would argue that what we are seeing from Saul here is actually pretty sad, that the first king of Israel, God's chosen vessel, the one whom God anointed, is just, he's plummeting, and today, unfortunately, is probably the lowest that we've seen Saul up to this point. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21 picks up right after the story of David and Jonathan in the field with Jonathan shooting the arrows, and Jonathan goes back home, and the story zooms in now on David. What takes place after David is fleeing the wrath of King Saul? We see in verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? Uh, so just a couple of things from this first, this first verse here. We see David flees to Nob. Now from uh, maps of ancient Israel, we see that Nob isn't all that far away from Jerusalem. So it's not like David ran like 30 miles 
and he's just panting and out of breath, but he's well outside of Saul's reach. No, this is like two miles away. It's kind of like a little pit stop as David is fleeing and trying to get away from Saul even further away. The second thing about Nob is that uh, it actually seems to have a large population of priests, uh, so much so that later on in chapter 22, we see Nob called the city of priests. So it's no surprise then that David comes to Nob and he meets a priest named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he sees David and he knows something is wrong. We can see just even his body language is a little bit off there in verse 1. He comes to David and he's trembling. And he says, uh, hey, why, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Ahimelech seems to possess maybe that sixth sense that a lot of moms seem to have that uh, they can tell when something is wrong. And I'm not really sure how moms are able to do it, but they just know, like, uh, something's not quite right. Ahimelech knows something is not quite right here with David being by himself. Uh, commentators speculate that it would have been unusual for David to be traveling by himself if he's someone of such importance, of such prestige, for him to be all alone coming to Ahimelech, maybe something isn't quite right. At least he would have some sort of entourage or bodyguard, but he's alone, and that throws Ahimelech off a little bit. But David gives an answer as to what he's doing in verse number two, and he says this, and David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, this is just not true. Verse 2, David says, hey, the king's kind of sent me on a secret mission, and he doesn't want me to tell anyone about it. But the reality is, as we've just spent a couple minutes already describing that David's not on a secret mission here on behalf of the king. He's running from the king. Uh, we're not really sure what to do with some of the deception that we've seen already in 1 Samuel here. David is obviously, at, at the very best, just being very, very vague and holding his cards close to his chest, if you will. But there is, again, some speculation about why David isn't being forthright here. Uh, some people think that maybe David is skeptical of Ahimelech's loyalties. If he's really close to Jerusalem already, and Ahimelech is buddy-buddy with King Saul, and he says, hey, I'm running from Saul, Ahimelech's going to dash back and tell Saul, hey, he's right here in Nob. Uh, so that's one idea. Another idea is possibly that David is trying to protect Ahimelech, where if he gives him very little information, then Ahimelech can't be charged with colluding with an enemy of the king. That's actually going to be significant a little bit later. But David has a request. He's come to Nob for a reason. Verse 3, let's see what that request is. Now then, David says, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to, re to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. So, so what does David want here? 
What's he looking for at Nob? Yeah, food. Looking for something to eat. Now, ordinarily, this isn't too unusual of a request. Shouldn't be that big of a deal for him like to say, yeah, 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 we got something on hand. However, there's a problem. The only food available is, is what is described here in this text is called the bread of the presence, which was considered holy because it had been offered to the Lord. Now we see in Leviticus chapter 24, this bread of the presence is given uh, a description in greater detail than what we have here. And it says that there were 12 total loaves that once a week were to be baked and put on a gold table to the Lord. And when that week ended, 12 more fresh loaves were baked and the old ones were removed. But there was one important caveat with those loaves is that only the priests could eat of them. So Ahimelech kind of finds himself between a rock and a hard place here because David is obviously not what? A priest. But in good conscience, he's able to give David bread just based off of Davis, David's uh, concession that these young men have kept themselves ritually pure. They haven't, as Ahimelech is really concerned about, been with women recently. So in good conscience, he can give them this bread. Okay, the story's a little bit weird. We're not entirely sure. It's kind of obscure. It might strike us as something that is like, okay, interesting, I guess, that Ahimelech gave him the bread. But the New Testament actually mentions this story, and it's pretty significant in the New Testament. Does anyone remember where this is brought up in the New Testament or what events are surrounding this very thing? Anyone know off the top of their head? Yes, exactly. I actually want us to turn there and look at this because this is quoted in the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 12. Cynthia was exactly right. Matthew chapter 12. Let's just work through the first several verses together. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. All right, pause there. It's always the Pharisees that pop up at the worst time, and they always manage to be right there when Jesus is doing something that they don't like, and they always have this trying to pin him with doing something wrong. In this case... They are accusing Jesus and the disciples of harvesting on the Sabbath. So I guess the simple act of taking uh, a head of grain and plucking it off of a stalk in a field would be considered harvesting by the Pharisees. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 3 here. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So he cites this example from 1 Samuel 21, and he says, listen, you're accusing me of breaking the law, of breaking the Sabbath. Do you not know 
that there's an instance in which it seems to be happening back in the Old Testament, and he points to the story that we just looked at in 1 Samuel. And actually, Jesus goes on to add another instance in the very next verse of what seems to be breaking the law, verse 5. Or, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What Jesus is saying here is, don't you know that even the priests have to work on the Sabbath day? And no one condemns them for working on the Sabbath day. They're actually pronounced guiltless. Jesus is building a case here. What I'm doing is okay based off of precedent of prior scriptures. Okay, but we have to ask ourselves a question here. What are we to make of this exception to obedience to the law, if I can call it that? Because breaking the law was a serious matter. I mean, we we don't need to look too far in the Old Testament to see that breaking the law had severe consequences. We mentioned this dude pretty regularly. Uh, The two guys, Nadab and Abihu, that used the, as scripture calls it, the strange fire before the Lord, what happened to them? Dead. Uzzah, when he reaches out his hand to touch the ark, what happens to him? Dead. He's not a priest. They're transporting the ark in the wrong way. You break God's law you die. You use fire that is not authorized by God. You're dead. So how can David, not a priest, go into the house of God and eat food that is reserved only for priests? Any ideas? Anyone want to take a crack at why this exception might be okay? Why Jesus is actually saying it's okay? Yeah, Johnny. It could be something like that. I think verse 7 actually maybe gets at what you're saying. Let's look at Matthew 12, verse 7. Jesus says, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. This isn't putting these two things in contrast to one another. Obviously, the Lord requires sacrifices. We see that throughout the Old Testament. God requires sacrifices. But when given the choice between the two, when there is a scenario that arises where it's either mercy or obedience to the law, God says what? Give me what? Mercy. Choose this option. In 1 Samuel, I believe it's 15. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when uh, Saul refuses to kill King Agag and the best of the sacrifices, God tells Saul through Samuel the prophet, he says, I desire obedience and not sacrifice. Sacrifices are certainly important, but God is after something even more important here. He's after the heart. And, And it's not that, you know, again, God doesn't require sacrifices, but he doesn't want rote sacrifices. He wants obedience that stems from a heart of love. He's not... Here in verse, in chapter 12, God is after ultimately mercy. We see an immediate example of this in Matthew 12. Look at verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So again, almost immediately, people are going after Jesus for breaking the law here. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? That might be a violation of the law. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, 
will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and is restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. You see how in this very next text, Jesus is again confronted with this crossroads of, should you heal or let this guy go on with a withered hand? And he says, look, if you have an animal that falls in a pit, you'll pull him out of it. Are not people of more value than animals? Is not mercy more important than sacrifice? Don't we love the heart of our Savior in this text of Scripture and loving people and his provision for them? Look what Jesus, just two more verses we'll consider in Matthew chapter 12 here. Look how he uses this example from 1 Samuel 21, what seems to be kind of an obscure story, how he uses it as a springboard to tell us about his authority as the Son of Man. Look at verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than even the temple. And then verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is greater, as we looked at last week, than the whole of the Old Covenant. The work of Christ is so much better. And he's using this story here in 1 Samuel as a springboard to show us his authority as the Son of Man. But back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We've got this story to finish here. Verse 7. David is still in Nob. And we read, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now at first, in what already seems to be an obscure story, we have a random mention of this dude, Doeg the Edomite. But let me tell you this, there are not random verses in Scripture. Anyone remember the origin of the Edomites? I'll be impressed if someone knows this. So actually, their forefather, or their patriarch, if you will, was Esau. That name should be dinging some alarms in our mind. Jacob and Esau, when they were alive, they were at odds with each other, right? We know they were always clashing butting heads. It seems like this rivalry, this animosity continues throughout the whole of scripture, at least in the Old Testament, because in the book of Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament, we see a reference to Edom, and God himself says, if Edom tries to rebuild their city, I personally will tear it down. That's how much Edom is in opposition to Israel. And here we see this guy, verse 7, who seems to be this random inclusion. Doeg the Edomite just happens to be in the same place that David is when he's getting this bread from Ahimelech. And so we can almost guarantee with his mention here in verse number 7 that we're going to see him again in the story, and we will. But David, remember he's close to Jerusalem still in Nob. He's got to get further away. Look where he goes, verse 8. Excuse me, he has one more request in verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have bought, brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Yet the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, 
Behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David says, there is none like that. Give it to me. So David, not only does he want bread, he wants a weapon. And he's looking around. Hey, you know, do you guys have any weapons on hand here? And he's like, oh, yeah, we have Goliath's sword. Now, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big flex to be walking around holding Goliath's sword. I mean, and David's the guy that took him out. So this is pretty awesome. It's kind of, you know, ironic that now he's walking around with Goliath's sword. But like I said just a minute ago, he's got to run somewhere else. He's trying to get as far away as he can. Where does he go? Verse 10, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, does anyone else remember who is famous from Gath? Goliath. So to rehearse David's plan here, he is running away to the hometown of the giant he just killed. And not only is he going there, but he's bringing his sword with him. I can't imagine that he's a popular dude in Gath at the time, having just taken out their giant of a man, and he's got a sword like it's a trophy. Like, okay, David, your plan doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but I guess it's maybe safer than being with King Saul. If he's going after you, maybe going to another country is helpful. Okay, but look at, people recognize him. Look at verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, uh, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the people are like, uh, hey, is this not the dude that they're singing about back in Israel that's killed a bunch of people? Uh, actually, I think this is the king. They call him that. They say, is this not David, the king of the land? And this panics David. He's like, yikes. They recognize me. I mean, I kind of figured they would, but they recognize him. And so David changes his tactic in verse 12, and he takes these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. And his plan actually works. Look at verse 14. Achish says to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? The king's like, I got enough madman running around here. If David is just another one of them, it's really no bother to me. I'd rather he, me not be responsible for taking care of him. So his plan seems to work. And okay. We get to chapter 22, and David leaves Gath, and he departs from there, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. We see David gathering this entourage here of uh, just an odd group, people who are in debt, people who are bitter, uh, everyone who's in distress. And David went there, uh, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And what we've been reading here has really just been uh, some really just narrative on what takes place after David flees Gath. He goes to this cave. His family joins him. Some other people join him. Then he goes to Moab, and he kind of resides there until a prophet comes and says, hey, it's time for you to get back to Judah. 
But we do have a story that is yet to be concluded, and that is, what was Doeg doing there in Nob when Ahimelech is, t- is taking care of David? We've got to see what happens. There's a resolution to that story, and we pick it up in verse number 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Saul is very paranoid in this passage of scripture. He's on this like rant talking about, you know, he's got all his servants about him. He's got a spear in his hand. And I'm sure some of those servants have seen what Paul does when he's got a spear in his hand. You know, twice Saul's chucked that spear at David trying to take him out. And these servants are probably like, yikes. And Saul's just going off here. Like, uh, is everyone ganging up against me? Are you being bribed by David to hide his location? No one even tells me that my son Jonathan is helping out David. And he's just going off like, what is happening? Who's going to help me out here? Who's going to feed me information about where David is? And who do you think pipes up? Look at verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now this dude Doeg just rats David out, doesn't he? And he says, oh yeah, I saw David at Nob with Ahimelech. And he paints this picture of David and Ahimelech being all buddy-buddy. You read this, and it seems like Ahimelech just gave him food, gave him a sword, inquired on behalf of the Lord for him. I mean, they're best friends. But is that really what the text seemed to indicate back in chapter 21? No, remember, David kept him in the dark. Ahimelech asks, why are you here? Why are you alone? And David says, I'm on a secret mission, but I just need some bread and a weapon. That's not the story that Doag tells. He makes it seem like they are knowingly colluding. And this story feeds into Saul's paranoia. He's already concerned about David. He's already jealous of him. And this just inflames that jealousy. Look what happens in verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Now Saul here accuses Ahimelech without bothering to ask him his side of the story. 
It's not like this very judicial process in which Ahimelech gets to share his side and Doeg his, and Saul kind of determines who's telling. Saul just comes out guns blazing and says, why are you doing this? Why are you conspiring against me with my enemy? Look what Ahimelech does, verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Ahimelech is doing what everyone up to this point has been doing with David to Saul. They've been defending him. They're incredulous that Saul would make these accusations against the captain of his bodyguard, his own son-in-law. Saul's children have been defending him. Here's Ahimelech now saying, listen, David is not a bad dude. Ahimelech defends himself now in verse 15. And says, is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. So let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Ahimelech is saying, listen, David's come to me in the past. From Ahimelech's perspective, this just seems like David coming to him almost like every other time. He tells Saul, I, I know nothing of this matter that you're accusing me of, much or little. But does this dissuade Saul? Look at verse 16, it doesn't. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. It's not just Ahimelech that's going to pay here, but all the priests of the Lord. Verse 17, and the king said to the guard who stood with him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now, it seems that Saul's men at this point have more common sense than he does. When given an order to kill priests, they're like, uh, no, we're not doing that. And you would think that their response would key Saul in to this fact that, okay, if my men are disobeying me, with what I imagine is a pretty severe penalty for disobeying a direct order of the king, maybe I should reconsider what I'm asking them to do here. Maybe killing priests isn't such a good idea. But Saul is determined to find someone who will carry out this order. Who do you think he asks? Let's look. Verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. So Doeg, the ancestral enemy of Israel, has no problem taken out the priests of the Lord. And he doesn't stop at the priests, does he? Infant, women, animals. This is a wholesale massacre that Doeg, the priest, initiates on the city of Nob. And in the midst of this massacre, there seems to be one good thing that happens. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, 
the son of a high tub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me shall, you shall be in safekeeping. And so this one guy escapes the city, and he goes and finds David, and David's like, oh, man, I thought that would happen. And David bears personal responsibility for the death of all of these people, and he promises Abiathar here, hey, listen, I'll protect you. Stay with me. I can provide some measure of protection to you because he's also looking for me, so we can both hide out together, I guess. And that's it. The chapter ends. And we're like, okay. And what we've seen today, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, is probably the lowest point in Saul's life where he orders the execution of what amounts to an entire city based off of assumptions, based off of just this blind rage that he has for David, really this jealousy. We saw a couple chapters ago when the women are singing about Saul's killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, that from that day on, Saul was jealous of David. He had his eye on him, the text said. Jealousy is a terrible thing. In this story, it occasioned the death of a city. But it can also creep into our lives, too, albeit in less sinister ways. Uh, Just think with me, maybe, much like Saul, you, in your workplace, in your family, amongst your peers, maybe you hold a position of authority or power or prestige and everyone loves you. And you seem to be the center of attention. And then someone else gets hired, or someone else is brought into the family or added to your friend group. And they seem to have more charisma. They seem to be doing better at what you excelled at. And all of a sudden, the attention gets shifted off of you and onto this person. Now, maybe you try to play it cool and be friendly to that individual, but you know what you've lost. And every time you see them, you have this knot in the pit of your stomach, like, you are the reason that no one is paying attention to me anymore. Maybe your jealousy is just a simple desire for what other people have. Maybe you've spent your whole life working, trying to provide for yourself and your family and someone else. They're riding on their parents' coattails. Everything they have has been given to them. And you look at them and you're like, I have been grinding my whole life to try and eke out a living, and and you haven't worked a dime for anything you own, and you're blowing it all. And there's just maybe just some jealousy, even in people's like lifestyles or how they've, you know, achieved where they are in life. No, I, I don't think any of us would slaughter a city in our jealousy. But certainly those same thoughts that Saul had are running around in our hearts, and we have to address them because we can be jealous too. Uh, So just some ideas from scripture about how to combat it. You know, I think a big one would be contentedness. Reflecting on what it is that scripture says about being content 
with such things as you have, what has been apportioned to you from God himself. Uh, Another big one is humility. Thinking about Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about uh, don't be caught up with this selfish ambition and conceit, but in lowliness of mind, you know, think of others as better than yourself. Uh, Romans says a very similar thing in chapter 12 when it says, uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't take yourself too seriously. Remember that everything you have is from God. There's no reason to be jealous with what other people have. You know, easy to say, pretty easy for me to tell you here, easy to practice. Excuse me, not easy to practice. It's easy on paper, a lot harder to practice. But let me just encourage you from Saul's own bad example that jealousy is a terrible thing and that we need to address it in our lives. There's a couple other things. We've got a couple minutes left that I want to draw our attention to this morning. And that is this, the interconnectedness of Scripture. There's a couple things that we need to consider from this text here in 1 Samuel, which other scriptures can really illuminate for us. So let me give you this little nugget of information, and you tell me if there's any significance to it. The priests that were slaughtered at Nob can trace their lineage back to Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel. Why is that significant? Is there anything that is triggering a memory in your mind about what God told Eli all the way back in chapter 2? Yeah, Cuppy. Yes. Yes. Let's actually turn, if you're still in 1 Samuel, let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 31 reads, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that, you, that shall be bestowed on is, I'm sorry, that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So do you see God tells Eli, all the way back in chapter 2, because of the wickedness of Eli's sons and Eli not doing anything to change their ways, God says, there's not going to be an old man in your house. In fact, someone is going to come through with a sword and wipe out everyone. God's even more specific, and he says that one person is going to escape and he's going to be weeping his eyes out. Do we not see this fulfilled in the text of Scripture we just read today? One person escapes, Abiathar. Everyone else of Eli's descendants are killed. And so what really is a tragedy, don't get me wrong, the death of anyone, this massacre of women and children and 85 priests is a terrible thing, but God predicted it. And it is also a judgment on Eli and on his descendants. God keeps his word, does he not? When he says something, we may have forgotten about it in the course of a couple weeks. God didn't over the course of years. All of Eli's descendants are killed by the sword except for one, and we can read even a little bit later, Abiathar is still around by time Solomon rules, and Solomon actually expels him from the priesthood entirely, and with the expulsion of Abiathar, the line of Eli is no longer priests. God keeps his word. 
one other place we've got to turn to, and that's Psalm chapter 52. If you have an inscription at the top of that psalm, it gives a little uh, stamp as to the setting of it. When does it say that Saul, excuse me, David wrote this psalm? I'll read it for you. It says, to the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So David actually writes a psalm during the events that we just read about this morning. When Doeg comes to Saul and tells him, hey, I saw David with Amalek, David writes a psalm. We can imagine, I mean, we know from our perspective, Doeg is not a good guy. He he kills all these people. We know that. Imagine how David feels, ganged up on not only by Saul, but by this Edomite this enemy of Israel, probably discouraged, probably overwhelmed, probably frustrated by evil always seeming to prevail in his life? Look how David responds in this psalm. Verse 1, why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Isn't David's response here awesome? He knows who Doeg is. He's been bombarded by evil. And he trusts, not in the fact that he's got Goliath's sword that he's hauling around, but he trusts in his God to preserve him and to protect him. And he knows that evil ultimately does not win. David knows that the Lord is on his side and that is whom he is trusting in. When his circumstances seem to be out of control, when he is being surrounded literally by his enemies, David says, you know what? I just trust in God. His steadfast love forever and ever. He'll wait on the name of God, for it is good. And we, like David, would do well to replicate this mindset in our lives. When things seem overwhelming, when we are bombarded by um, just terrible, terrible trials, trust in God. He'll deliver. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your word. Thanks for taking a text of scripture that seems to be 
honestly, a little obscure to us and just revealing your goodness and showing us uh, David's own response to hardships as we've just observed in this psalm. Help us to model that in our own lives when things seem out of control, when wickedness seems to be prevailing, when evil is at every turn. Lord, help us to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord and know that ultimately you will come and set all things right. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.